Have you ever met someone who labels himself as a history buff? Perhaps you have a stereotype in your mind if, you, if someone comes to mind. Maybe that person is a bit of a know-it-all and thinks he can mop the floor with any contestant on Jeopardy and is really into documentaries. Halfway through my sophomore year of college, I switched my major to history. Now, it's sort of a lengthy explanation for why I did that, and it's not really important for the purpose of this story. But you see, when I made that switch, I was probably like the person you had in your mind. <laughs> a self-proclaimed history buff. But then I began to study history in an actual academic setting and discovered my self-assessment was way off. <laughs> With each subsequent semester, I've just found the breadth and depth of history to be overwhelming. My awakening went something like this. Oh, there's more to American history than just the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, and presidents. There's actually cultural history. There's social history, economic history, political history, religious history, scientific history. We could keep going. What's more, there are endless kinds of history, not just in the United States, but in every single place in the world. In each of those kinds of history, in each place that they happen, and in each time they take place, going back to ancient civilizations, there are even more than just the big headlines and events. There are actually tiny details and individuals. You see, there's more and more and more. So, I thought... Maybe an honors high school history class in a two-hour documentary on the History Channel doesn't make me a history buff. In fact, you may be able to tell someone's not a history buff if they call themselves a history buff. I was victim of what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically says that people who don't know much don't always realize that they don't know much. In the original study, researchers performed a series of four investigations and found that people who scored in the lowest percentiles on subjects such as grammar, humor, and logic, the people who scored the lowest also tended to drastically overestimate how well they had actually performed. So their actual test scores placed them on the 12th percentile but they estimated that their performance would place them at the 62nd percentile. You can see a gap there, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Drastic overestimation. When I became a history major, I found out that the more I knew about history, the more I saw how much there is to know about history. And that same phenomenon happens when we begin to know and pursue God. What we find when looking at Psalm 8 
is that the pursuit of God, of knowing him, is perhaps the most humbling pursuit that there is. That he reigns above everything and only he is truly infinite. And at the same time, while it's more humbling than any pursuit, it's also more beautiful than any pursuit. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, if you're looking at the red Bible in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 450. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, this psalm takes us inside the mind of David, the shepherd boy turned king. You can see that David's contemplation of God and of his majesty leads to him feeling of humiliation about his insignificance, which in turn leads to even more exaltation of God's love and grace. Contemplation leading to humiliation, leading to exaltation. So truly here in Psalm 8, we just get a little snapshot of the sweet communion that we have with the Lord. C.S. Lewis called Psalm 8 a short, exquisite lyric. I think we can summarize the main thrust of Psalm 8 in the following way. When we begin to contemplate God's majesty, we set forth on a beautiful, humbling, and unending pursuit. When we begin to contemplate God's majesty, we set forth on a beautiful, humbling, and unending pursuit. The questions then become for us. Are we on that pursuit? Are we on it? How are we doing if we are on that pursuit? Are we feeling encouraged? Discouraged? Well, I pray by the end of our time together that we will all experience afresh what's said in another psalm, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. I usually like to set a roadmap for us before we travel through whatever text is before us on Sunday. Hopefully that's helpful in keeping in mind where we are throughout the sermon. This psalm in particular breaks down into two big parts, and then it has a conclusion. So the first part, David sets off a type of fireworks display of God's majesty. There's just majesty everywhere in the first two verses. 
In the second part, verses 3 to 8, we get a closer look at how God displays his majesty in people. So we'll go through those verses once, but then we'll go through those verses again with a special emphasis on verses 5 to 9 and show how this majesty is ultimately fulfilled, not in us, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the third psalm uh, of the psalm selections, the third one on the CD, if you will. Uh, Remember that the book of Psalms is a collection of songs, hymns, and prayers. Some of them written out of joy and exuberance. Others out of sorrow and lament. Others still a mixture of both. Remember also that throughout the Psalms, God reveals who he is. He reveals how we are to relate to him pretty much in every circumstance and through every emotion. And God also reveals his role as king. And his role as king, we see in light of the whole Bible, even a place like Psalm 2 we saw last week, ultimately fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. So, so far we've seen that Psalms 1 and 2 are the gateway to the entire collection. At the entrance of the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2 show us the way to blessing, the way to happiness or fulfillment or peace. And it's not from a self-help book at Barnes & Noble. It's from a way that is not inside of us. It's from outside of us. The way of blessing is from the Lord who has given us his word, who has spoken. So the way of blessing is giving ourselves to this. The one who dwells on and is completely driven by the word of God is the blessed man of Psalm 1. We concluded Psalm 1 just by thinking, what? That is not any of us, ultimately. The truly blessed man of Psalm 1 is Jesus Christ. And Psalm 2 picks up that and says that we find refuge, not in ourselves, not by raging against God, but finding refuge in that blessed man of Psalm 1, the Son of God, the King who God has established, who has absorbed God's wrath for our sin. So Psalm 8 picks up on a lot of those themes already started in Psalms 1 and 2. And after Psalms 1 and 2, 3 to 7, those psalms, they're all psalms of lament. Crying out to God for deliverance. And against that backdrop, Psalm 8 comes in. Psalm 8 comes in against the backdrop of lament. And it offers a beautiful poem of praise for God's glory and love for seemingly insignificant creatures. That's kind of where we've been. So now let's dive in to uh, Psalm 8. And as we head into the first section of this particular psalm, it shows us that God's majesty is everywhere. To mix metaphors a little bit, to use another picture, it's as if God's majesty is a diamond. You'd imagine a diamond, and you hold it up to the light, and the thing that makes it sparkle and reflect as you rotate it are all of its little edges. So you can see all the different parts of verses 1 and 2, and even the rest of this psalm are like edges on the diamond of God's majesty. 
So holding up this diamond, God's majesty, first ask, well, what do we mean by majesty? Define our terms a little bit here. The most basic level, majesty means excellence or greatness. You think about the context you may use that word, majesty. I don't, know, I don't know about you, first context that comes to mind for me is royalty. People call the Queen of England Her Majesty. And what do they communicate when they call the Queen of England that? What do we communicate when we use that word, Majesty? Well, we communicate that we acknowledge that person's greatness. Communicate also that we are voicing our respect for that person. Majesty. This is the subject here. And who is it here that we call majestic? Who is it? Well, it's the Lord, all caps. Our Lord. Even his name we call majestic. And each one of those is an even tinier edge reflecting the diamond of God's majesty. The name of the Lord. You print it in all caps, which, sidebar, just... The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translated the word there as Kyrios, which is Lord in the Greek. A bit of a long story of why that's the case, uh, but the fact that it's, they use that phrase Lord or the word Lord to refer to God makes it all the more significant that Jesus Christ is labeled with the title Lord. Sidebar done. Lord, all caps, is God's covenant name. A name he first revealed to Moses, the burning bush, in Exodus. At that time, he's commissioning Moses to go to Egypt. And through Moses, God was going to set free the Israelites. And Moses asked God, he's like, well, God, who do I say sent me? Moses tells, or God tells Moses, tell them, I am who I am, sends you. Yahweh. I am who I am. What does this name reveal about God? Reveals that God is eternal, unchangeable, self-existent. It speaks of God's perfection. He is who he is. There is no improvement. Another way you could say it is he will be what he will be. So here's Israel on the brink of annihilation. And here's God coming to them, saying, I am who I am will be with you. The one who's perfect, the one who's eternal, the one who's unchangeable is with you now. So this name, the Lord, is meant to evoke trust, confidence, comfort. And what's implied in that name is made explicit in the next phrase. Our Lord. This eternal, perfect, unchangeable God is not distant. He's personal. This is our Lord. This is our King. But even the name of God is majestic. Even his name. Another way to put it, even his reputation, or even better, even in his character and perfections that he's made known to us. Even those are majestic. 
Even what God has revealed is majestic. What must the fullness of himself be? So that's who we call majestic. Our Lord. Where do we see his majesty? Where do we see it? What does it say? It says, in all the earth. We see it everywhere. Go to the plains. Go to the desert. Go to the mountains. Go to the valleys. Go to the ocean. Go to the forests. God's majesty is there. Charles Spurgeon says this, There is no place where God is not. The miracles of his power await us on all sides. Traverse the silent valleys where the rocks enclose you on either side, rising like the battlements of heaven, till you can see but a strip of the blue sky far overhead. Descend, if you will, into the lowest depths of the ocean, where undisturbed the waters sleep, and the very sand is motionless in unbroken quiet. But the glory of the Lord is there revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Everywhere and in every place, God dwells and is magnificently at work. Where is God's majesty? It's in all things. And yet, Psalm 8 says, it's even above all of it. Reminds me of when King Solomon built his temple this grand place. And he tells the Lord, Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So from the wonders of the telescope to the wonders of the microscope, their wonders are but a shadow. They cannot contain the glory of the one who made them. So friends, where is God's majesty? It's in all things, yet it's above the heavens. But still, it is echoed even in the weakest of creatures. Out of the mouth of babies and infants. These appear to be such different things. The heavens, the babies and infants. But both of them show the majesty of the Lord. So the opening of Psalm 8 Verses 1 and 2. They challenge us to be more fluent in praise. To take better notice of God's majesty. To put on the full house glasses, if you will. I'm not talking about, you know, you know the show, Full House? Remember? No? Okay. I may be the only one. I'm not talking about being cheesy like I'm Full House. I can't believe I like that show. I'm looking back at it. And seeing everything is sort of hunky-dory. But for the full house buffs out there, if you can call yourself a full house buff, you remember the main line to the theme song? The one that keeps saying over and over and over again? Everywhere you look. Everywhere you look. Have we tuned our hearts to praise so that everywhere we look, we can see traces of God's greatness and God's majesty. That is the beginning of the pursuits we mentioned at the outset of our time. When we read of the life of Christ, 
we find that Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, when he enters Jerusalem uh, the week before he is set to die. And he applies Psalm 8, verse 2, to himself. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem the week before his death, some people, you may recall, gave him a royal welcome. And others took notice. Others took notice of how they were recognizing him as God's anointed, as the Messiah we talked about in Psalm 2. Psalm 8, verse 2, shows us that despite God displaying his majesty everywhere, God still has enemies. So, when the religious leaders of Jesus' day saw that the people were giving him this royal welcome, they go up to Jesus and they, they accuse him. They said, do you see what's going on? Do you see what they're doing? And in response, Jesus quotes this verse. And he turns the tables on them. And he asks, basically, no, can't you see what's going on? Even children recognize who I am. And you, these so-called religious leaders who are supposed to be close to God, can't see who I am. God's majesty should be obvious. He's left traces of it everywhere. Can't you see it? It should be obvious. The wonders of nature should not lead us to think that everything happened by accident. God's majesty should be obvious, but it's not. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is right in front of us. But we suppress it and give glory to other things. In other places, the Bible calls us blind on our own. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't have these glasses and you don't see God's majesty everywhere. This is just not how you see things. And what should you do? You should cry out to God to open your eyes. And friend, the fact that you are here today, that you have the book he's given to people sitting on your lap, <laughs> is an indication that he invites you to say that prayer. God, open my eyes. Yes, get your questions answered. Absolutely. But would this be your desire? And friends, life becomes so much more beautiful this way. It's quite literally like putting on glasses for the first time. I see plenty of people in here who got glasses on. I remember the first time I put on glasses. And then I looked at trees. It's like, oh my gosh, trees have leaves. <laughs> Cry out to God. God, show me yourself everywhere. I think for those of us who claim to view God as majestic, we act just in our daily lives, just kind of at the functional level, as if God's majesty is sort of ho-hum and dull. Friends, it's everywhere. Start noticing again. When I was uh, preparing the sermon, at this point in the sermon, I was eating 
redskin potatoes, corn, and sliced pork. God's majesty is there. God's majesty, you think about it. God could have just given us gray mush for how we are fueled. God's given us so many different kinds of foods. That's just one thing. Friends, start noticing again. One theologian says this, our thoughts of God are not great enough. We think of God too much like what, like what we are, limited and weak. We must learn to acknowledge the full majesty of our incomparable God and Savior. So, Steve, you may say, well, how do I do that? Well, it's a great question, and we get the answer. We get a real-life example of what it looks like to look at creation with these majesty of God glasses. David gives us an example, beginning in verse 3. Here he is, pondering who God is and who he is in light of God. And what is it that David notices? What prompts him? He notices the moon and the stars. Many commentators on this psalm find it interesting that not included in his observation is the sun. It's the moon and the stars. So maybe then, these are David's musings as he's gazing at the night sky. Perhaps, I'm just speculating here, David's restless one night, can't sleep, so he goes out, looks at the stars. Let's walk through David's nighttime pondering. And the first phrase catches our attention immediately. When I look, when I look. There's something about that phrase that's just so human. Something about that phrase that describes each one of us. When I look. This isn't a command. This doesn't say, look at the night sky. This says, when I look. It's just an assumption. Each one of us, at some point in your lives, unless you've just become this Grinch, gets caught up in a sky full of stars, basks in sunrises, peer into telescopes, go on hikes, for crying out loud. Shouldn't it tell us something? That there's literally no other creature on earth who does that. You know, a family of bears right now is not on their way to the Grand Canyon just to look at it. <laughs> so this, the evolutionary or natural explanation of why we crave beauty, if it's just that, if it's just evolutionary, if it's just natural, it would say we find things beautiful because they were useful to our ancestors in order to procreate or survive. That's why we find things like uh, a, a pond of water and trees beautiful. That's just not our experience. Like, why should the view of the full moon, why should I find that beautiful? What does that do for me? How does that help me survive? Why, why should I find a landscape of mountains or a, even a barren desert just the bright orange of that. Why should we find that beautiful? 
beauty tells us that there is not meaninglessness. That there is something, rather someone, behind it. David says, the moon and the stars, the work of God's fingers. He says that God's set them in place. Reflecting on Augustine's confessions, the ideas there, C.S. Lewis spoke of our craving for beauty and just like desires in general. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires. Well, that's real too. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We find this world beautiful, though it is fallen. We find this world beautiful because we were made for the beautiful one who made it all. It's this thought that brings David to his knees. Because after looking up, he looks at himself. And David didn't need pictures from the Hubble telescope to realize that he is very, very small. So picture a forest. Even a large field of trees will do. You've got a big field of trees in the back of our grounds here. Tall trees, big trees. One could even say majestic trees. So two months earlier, they're still full of leaves. Imagine if you took a picture of that field of trees, waited five minutes, and just one leaf from just one of those trees fell. And then he took another picture. And you didn't know that the leaf had fallen. And you compare the two. Could you tell that that leaf had fallen? The whole field of trees. No. That would be the same effect if the earth had dropped out of the universe. Even to a greater degree. That is how small we are. At the most difficult point in his life, John Newton, the former slave trader and writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, says that he wasn't scared so much of God punishing him for his sin as much as he was scared of God overlooking him. If we're that small, the universe is that big, what does it say of the one who made it? If the universe is that big and then we are that small, what does it say of the one who cares for us? You see, the vastness of the universe only magnifies God's love and care. We just keep pushing further and further and further. See how bright this diamond of God's majesty is. The moon and the stars are that big, and we are that small, yet God still knows us and still cares for us. So what is man, David asks. What is man? 
The Bible answers that, answers that question in other places. Man is dust. Man is but clay. Man is grass. We blossom, wither, then perish. More than all those things, man is a sinner. We who are small, insignificant, have the audacity to have pride in the face of the one who made everything. And so the majesty of God is that he cares for us despite our seeming insignificance. But even more than that, he cares for those who are insignificant and who have sinned against him. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if you want to be blown away again by God's love, remember how small you are and remember how sinful you are. We see the moon and the stars and might conclude that God is remote and far off. But here it actually says that he is mindful and cares for us. It's astonishing, really. We might ask the question, like from Isaiah 40, verse 27. And God tells them, Why do you say, O Israel, and speak, O Jacob? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Friend, it might feel like God overlooks you. But even in the vastness of the universe, that is not the case. It might feel that way, but it is not that way. God overlooking you, that's a wrong conclusion. It's even a wrong thought about God. Keeps getting sweeter. Keeps getting brighter. God is majestic in that being the creator of these giant things like the moon and the stars, he still knows and cares for those seemingly insignificant. But he condescends even deeper than that. More than being mindful of small, sinful man, he adorns them with glory and showers them with blessings. You see how David peers even deeper into the care God has for his people, starting in verse 5. So here we are, puny in comparison to the things around us. Think of the sun that is over a million times bigger than the earth. And yet surprisingly, God has bestowed on people dignity and worth. So verses 5 to 8 are a reflection of the end of Genesis 1 where God creates man as the pinnacle of his creation and gives a task to his people. The task? Be a mirror. Be a mirror. Creating people in his image, God created us to reflect who he is to the world around us. As he rules over us well, so he calls us to rule over the rest of creation well. Before we think about this more, Consider that just as each one of us has this sense within us, this craving for beauty, so each one of us know the truth of verse, verses 5 to 8 in ourselves. Or at least we should. We have this sense that each and every person has dignity. And we ask, how could 
an evolutionary or natural explanation lead us to that conclusion? That every person has dignity. If it's, if it's just natural, if it's just, if it's just this, all we are are clumps of meat and a series of chemical reactions that buzzes in our heads. That's it. From a natural point of view, there's no reason why we are significant, especially given how vast the universe is. Think about it. That's, that's not our experience. That's not our sense. No one actually believes or acts like something such, such as Loving another person. Loving another person. No one really acts like, oh, that's just a series of chemical reactions going on in my brain. No one really acts that way. Further, if we're supposed to have evolved through the strong overcoming the weak, then there's nothing natural about human rights. See that push all over the world for human rights. That's a good thing. But it's really hard to explain why we should treat humans well if this is just all natural and evolutionary. It doesn't make sense without God creating us and giving us dignity. There's a bigger lesson, though, behind verses 5 to 8. There are so many things that would tell us that we don't have worth. Our abilities smallness, our insignificance, our lack of importance. If those were the only part of the story, we'd probably be right in that conclusion that we don't have worth and don't have dignity. But that's not the only part of the story. The only secure place for our dignity and worth is that God has given them to us is that they are from our creator. His is the opinion that ultimately matters. Well, like our experience and other psalms we've looked at, by the time we finish reading Psalm 8, something feels left unfinished. We read Psalm 1, we read of the blessed man, and think, that doesn't describe me or anybody I know. We read Psalm 2 and think, there's no way this king is just David or Solomon. He's got to be greater than that. So we read Psalm 8 and of God's intention for people and look at our own experience and think, something doesn't quite line up here. Something doesn't quite line up with what's described in verses 5 to 8. The creation's fallen. We haven't subdued it. It's subduing us. There are traces of beauty, yes, but death is still here. So the description of these verses leaves us with a longing for them to come about. So Jesus is the one who steps in and finishes what is left unfinished here. Earlier we read from Hebrews chapter 2. You'll find that in your bulletin. You can turn there uh, in your Bible if you like. And the author of the book of Hebrews, he begins his letter or his long sermon by identifying Jesus as the exalted Son of God, 
Is the theme of the book is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he's better than all the things that it pointed to. The angels, Moses, the priestly uh, sacrificial system. But the recipients of the book of Hebrews know what we know. Recognize what we recognize. The creation is still broken. It's not doing so hot. So if Jesus is this son of God who is exalted and rules over all, what gives? Why are things still this way? Further, if Jesus is, in fact, better than everything, even better than angels, what about his suffering and death? Wouldn't that say that he's actually inferior to angels, not superior to them? Read verses 5 to 9 from Hebrews 2 one more time. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And it's been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Can you catch the logic here of the author? How he begins, begins with a rich description of the place given to Jesus. Then he plays ball a little bit. It's like, all right, all right, I, I know what you're saying. I acknowledge what you are noticing. Last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it in its fullness yet. But what do we, what do we see? What do we see? we still see that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. And how did he gain those things? It's actually pretty surprising. He gained glory and honor by taking on human flesh for a little while, becoming lower than the angels. The king of heaven becoming frail and breakable. The one splendored in glory became small and insignificant. And not just that, not just taking on human flesh. He suffered unto death. That leads to his glory and honor. Why do all that? Why has he done this? That by the grace of God, he tasted death so that we don't have to. Though the first Adam lost what God designed for him, and thus plunged humanity into ruin. Jesus is the new and better Adam, undoing what the first Adam had done, restoring creation, redeeming humankind. Now, restoring people to God's intention for them, to have peace with him, to reflect who he is, to be the apple of his eye, that restoration work, that's not easy work. Neither it is cheap work. 
And so we receive it by grace. It is done by grace. It says, verse, verse 9, we do not earn it, but do not think that it did not come at a price. The work of restoration, of restoring people to what God intended, means that they must be cleansed of their sin. So in steps Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who took on flesh, suffered unto death, became the perfect, final sacrifice for sin. Because of Christ, our substitute, right now, there is reconciliation to God. Right now, there is forgiveness of sin. Right now, there is eternal life. Right now, there is sure hope in a fallen world. Friend, would you turn from your sin and believe in the one who is the fulfillment of Psalm 8? And it is more majestic still that we will see Jesus' finished work of restoration one day even in a more completed way. That one day, there will be no more disease. That one day, there will be no more death. One day, there will be no more sin. This is our Redeemer who makes all things new. Thomas Washburn, an old theologian, wrote this poem based on Psalm 8. Man's but a piece of clay that's animated by your heavenly breath. And when that breath you take away, he's clay again by death. He is not worthy of the least of all your mercies at the best. Baser than clay is he, for sin hath made him like the beasts that perish. Though next to angels he was in degree, yet this beast you cherish. He is not worthy of the least. Of all your mercies, he is a beast. Worse than a beast is man, who after your own image made at first, became the devil's son by sin. Can a thing be more accursed? Yet you, your greatness, your mercy has on this accursed creature cast. You did yourself abase, and put off all your robes of majesty, taking his nature to give him your grace, to save his life did die. He is not worthy of the least. Of all your mercies, even one is a feast. Lo, man is made now even with the blessed angels, yea, superior far, since Christ sat down at God's right hand in heaven, and God and man one are. Thus all your mercies man inherits, though not the least of them he merits. Brothers and sisters, start the journey of praising God's majesty, and you'll see that it grows sweeter and sweeter. Friends, here is majesty. That God made the nebulas, the galaxies, the stars, the moons, the planets. Here is majesty. That in a universe so grand, God knows each part. Here is majesty. In a universe so grand, God cares for small, seemingly insignificant people. Here is majesty. 
that with these small, insignificant creatures, even when they sinned against the one who made them, God sent his son to die for them and restore them. Here is majesty, that the Son of God restores weak and sinful people and unites them to himself. Here is majesty, that he restores everything broken by sin and that he brings his people to enjoy his majesty forever. Let's pray. Oh God, all praise we would render. Help us to see. Would you open our eyes, Lord, to see the traces of your majesty that you've left for us everywhere and then conclude, this is but a glimpse, this is but a shadow of who you must be. And then look at ourselves and say, God, what must it say of your love that you care for people so small? What must it say of your love that in caring for people so small who sinned against you, you take their place and die to restore them? Oh God, we long for the day when we will see your majesty in full and bask in it forever. Until then, keep us on the journey. Keep us on the journey of praising you for who you are. A simple thing, yet such a rich thing. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.